Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu. That's Tuesday, the 14th of March. Kornathan Rarere, a ho coming up. According to the latest political poll, National Party's on the rocks. Political editor Jane Patterson gives us her view, and I ask Nat, uh, National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis, what's gone so wrong? Gary Lineker is to return to UK TV screens. We speak to Britain about that. Well, just one Britain. Uh, the Breakers head to Sydney for the NBL Grand Final and more flood victims say that councils, not residents, should be responsible for keeping waterways clear. We're diligent with looking after it. However, other people don't care. And there's business owners further downstream who have that same attitude. It's, no, I don't have to look after that. And then things block up and houses upstream get flooded. Welcome to First Up. It's Nathan Rarity here with uh, multiple planetal things to talk about. Uh, one of the ones we're going to start with is in the UK, and it's Ali J, who's with us in London. Morena, Ali, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. So Gary Lineker, former football star to the nation, broadcaster about what well, we call it sport, punditry. Uh, he was suspended, uh, but it sounds like he's going to return as the match of the day host. It's caused quite the kerfuffle. Take us through it, Ali. It absolutely has caused quite the kerfuffle. So it's all anyone's really been talking about this weekend. And that's because it all started with his tweet last week when the government brought out their new um, migration policy. He he tweeted in response to this video that Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, had put out saying, this is awful. He said, uh, we take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is immeasurably, immeasurably cruel, he called it, uh, and said the language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. So that's the part of it that caused all of all of what happened since then. So Suella Bravman then came out and said he was he was being disrespectful. He shouldn't invoke the history of Nazi Germany when talking about this policy. Again, Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House of Commons, made a very drawn out allegory in the in the House of Commons about the government not needing goal hangers like Lineker when it comes to policy. So he retweeted that as well and it just kept it kept on going i mean the bbc said then on friday that it was having talks with gary but the thing is he's a freelancer so it was kind of conversations about uh expressing these views when you do represent the bbc and whether or not uh, they're also restricted by these things of having to be impartial but then the main thing on friday at about 5 p.m it was announced by the bbc that gary would be stepping back from hosting match of the day that's the um, show on Saturday night that it's about an hour and a half and they go through all of the football matches and dissect everything and, and take you through all the goals and the highs and the lows. Uh, it's a very popular show and they said uh, that Gary himself had agreed to step back from pre- presenting the show. About 20 minutes after that, Gary said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. I didn't say I I would step back. I've been told to step back. And then it really kicked off. After that, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, so they're his co-hosts on the show. They're also very famous um, footballers. They said they wouldn't present in solidarity. And then match of the day on Saturday night, it did go ahead. But instead of being an hour and a half, it was 20 minutes of highlights of football games shown without commentary, without the music. It was pretty bleak. Uh, um, But despite this, I mean, millions tuned in to watch it, one of its highest watching figures for the past few years. And that's because of this story and to see what's happened. But now this morning, 
Gary said there's been a conversation with the BBC. He'll be back presenting next week. And Tim Davy, the director general, has come out with this thing saying we're going to uh, we're going to change our guidelines or go back through our guidelines. We've had this conversation, um, and and he will be back. Ellie, look, there's, there's a very uh, there's something really big I've got to ask you here in there that you just spoke about. Full honesty from you, please. Match of the day, is it actually better when it's only just 20 minutes of highlights and not uh, an hour and a half of old players talking about what they would have done? <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly say. It was quite a bizarre thing, and they had. I was listening to. Um, news shows across the weekend and they had TV reviewers reviewing it and kind of <laughs> saying it turned into a quite sombre affair where you couldn't you couldn't really tell, well, you could, could tell what was going on, but then without the context of uh, the rest of the match or what was happening or somebody to kind of guide you through it, it just, it was really quite bizarre. But yeah, it, it was trending, so many people watching it. I'm not a regular watcher of it, but even I went back to find it online and go okay let's have a look at this yeah so Gary Lineker he's um what do you think happens now does he come back and it just carries on or does this bubble away for a while like how do you do you believe that he's very happy just to pop pop back in well, he said, I mean, he's tweeted online as well saying he's very happy to have, have had this conversation. And again, with um, talking about Tim Davey, the director general. But the, I think the problem is the BBC um, strives for impartiality. They say they are very impartial as well and that they will review their policies. But the problem is Gary Lineker is so famous and it got made into this huge thing with drawing in government ministers. So there's lots of conversation about the influence that government has and that the Conservative Party at the moment has in the BBC. It doesn't help that there's uh, the, the one of the chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp, he's part of this um, KC investigation into his impartiality because he um, facilitated a loan to Boris Johnson in the months before taking up this post mm. at the BBC. So now this is this is leading into that conversation, bringing up all of that again about Mr Sharp's appointment as BBC chairman and lots of people, including Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, saying that he should step down, Richard Sharp should step down from this from that position. But it's that kind of thing of just reigniting this this public debate about the impartiality of the BBC. Yeah, the impartiality thing. I saw a clip yesterday of Alistair Campbell being interviewed, might have been ITV, uh, where they said to, oh no, no, sorry, it was it was on BBC, and they said, oh, we should just qualify by saying that you know you're in a business partnership with Gary Lineker, and you know you know where you run a podcast together, and then the guy went to ask him a question, and Alistair Campbell said, why did you have to qualify me like that? Why don't I say? And then he just said the things about Richard Sharp, um, you know that, that you just said. Why don't I say that your boss uh, also helped to you know get a whole lot of uh, loan money for Boris Johnson so yeah it uh, it becomes quite the tightrope to walk doesn't it and it's something they cling to so dearly Ellie wonderful to speak to you thank you very much for your time out of the United Kingdom and with all the news over there that's Ellie J Mm. Uh, you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radity. Very keen uh, for your feedback, as always, 2101. Highlight shows, are they better with just highlights? What do you like? A bit of a pundit in there? What do you like? Uh, and also, too, Aucklanders, uh, you have woken up to quite the increase on your water bill this morning. 
Uh, 9.5% rise from July is where uh, Yamir's put it up to. Uh, so, for example, having a shower for eight minutes, that might take you 45 cents. There you are. If you're a long shower haver, a slow, uh, a, a little shower there, a four-minute shower will cost you 23 cents. Think about those added up during the month or how many times you have them or if you're one of those multiple sh- multiple shower people. I used to flat with someone who was a three-shower-a-day person, but there you go. Yeah, I know. Yeah, three showers a day. Anyway, 2101, uh, the water charges, that's, that is pretty significant. Also, if you're in a part of the country that doesn't have water charges right now, does it worry you to hear that going on uh, in, in Auckland and you think, hang on, they're going to charge us here too? Well, uh, let's have a look to uh, the world of dollars now. HSBC has bought the UK arm of the collapsed US Silic- uh, Silicon Valley Bank for just one pound. The bank collapsed on Friday after a run on deposits, sparking fears of a wider collapse of the US banking system. The BBC's Theo Liggett has more. An unexpected crisis, a hurried solution, and the owners of businesses like this one are breathing a heavy sigh of relief. Universal Quantum's trying to develop a revolutionary new generation of supercomputers. Like many small tech firms, it's a customer of the UK arm of American lender Silicon Valley Bank, which collapsed last week. Boss Sebastian Veit says he feared his money would be lost for good. We have a lot of our capital uh, with SVB and uh, obviously when the news broke that, um, or we heard in the grapevine that SVB may be in trouble, we obviously tried to get our funds out as quickly as possible. That was unsuccessful. So over the weekend we really had to scramble to, um, you know, put mitigating strategies in place uh, to, to survive as a company. For the government, this crisis came out of the blue. The sudden collapse of a bank in the United States left thousands of British technology businesses facing potential oblivion. A solution had to be found, and it had to be found quickly. Now the banking giant HSBC has stepped in. It's buying SVB's UK business for £1, ensuring its customers can access their money and avoiding the need for any kind of taxpayer-funded rescue. We were faced with a situation where uh, we could have seen some of our most important companies, our most strategic companies, uh, wiped out, and that would have been extremely dangerous. And that's why the Prime Minister, I, the Bank of England, were all rolling our sleeves up over the weekend to make sure we had a solution. The government insists the collapse of SVB did not pose a wider risk to the UK's financial sector. But some analysts believe it should be taken as a warning. The government generally and regulators have had a good weekend in actually avoiding a crisis. But the irony is that just at the moment when the government is thinking of slackening off the regulations of the financial services industry, this incident happens and it's a powerful reminder that it's a very dangerous industry that can actually cause damage to the the whole economy if it's not controlled properly. The effects of the sudden and dramatic SVB collapse are still being felt in financial centres around the world. Shares in many major banks have fallen because investors are still wondering whether any other unpleasant surprises lie just around the corner. Theo Leggett reporting there. It's a quarter past five. Time now to go to Japan. We get the latest from there. Our correspondent Chris Gilbert started by telling me about protests in Tokyo to mark the 12th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster. So on Saturday here in Tokyo, there were some protests that I went along and reported on outside the TEPCO building. TEPCO being one of the power companies here, the power company that ran the nuclear power plant 
and uh, is now, uh, I guess, running the cleanup and be managing that along with the government for the last 12 years. Yeah. The disaster for many people, especially those in Fukushima, the 27,000 evacuees which can't go back to their homes yet or don't want to go back to their homes yet, and people throughout the country, you know, the disaster is really still continuing for a lot of people. Uh, there are concerns, first of all, about how TEPCO uh, was running the plant to begin with 12 years ago. It has uh, accepted to some degree that it was not properly prepared for a nuclear disaster, whether it could have prevented it in the first place, but also how TEPCO has conducted the cleanup alongside the government for the last 12 years. Hmm. So this is a million tons of water. Uh, that's 500 Olympic swimming pools uh, that's being stored in a thousand tanks up in Fukushima that was used to cool the nuclear reactor, the government wants to use this new facility to uh, effectively strip it of isotopes and contaminants, make it not so radioactive, more fish-friendly, and uh, gently discharge it at a gentle pace into the Pacific Ocean over the decades to come. Uh, of course, this has caused a lot of concern with the fishers there and people throughout the country as well, experts that I've spoken to, and there's been quite a few of them, public policy analysts and scientists and such, they you know, have varying degrees of the concern about the safety and the environmental impact of it, but the consensus is almost across the board that I've noticed that everybody is concerned about how the government has gone about this barreling ahead without really any kind of consultation process. That 10 years ago, uh, they effectively decided that they wanted to treat it and discharge it into the ocean and that they were going to go ahead and do this and that people in Fukushima, uh, the fishers, the businesses, people throughout the country have not properly been consulted. More than that, just after the earthquake, there were massive protests against TEPCO and the government, like tens of thousands of people here in Japan. And Japan is not a very protesty culture. A massive public outcry and anger about what had happened. Twelve years later, the protest is quite small outside the TEPCO building on Saturday, and there is some kind of agreement amongst experts that the government has effectively kicked the ball down the road, floated this project, waited for the public interest to dissipate, and there are fears now. Uh, that the public memory of this disaster is being lost and that lessons from the nuclear meltdown that were meant to be learned may not actually have been learned at all. Meanwhile, we've got a billion litres worth of that water going out and we get to have a real-life Blinky the Three-Eyed Fish from The Simpsons uh, possibly swimming around, so that, <laughs> that could be pretty cool. Hey, there is um, a really awesome tradition going on. Tell me about the cherry blossom viewing parties because they look like they are back since, what, the first time since the pandemic started? There is a feeling here in Japan, finally, that uh, the pandemic may finally be easing. And this means that hanami may be coming back. Hana means flower. Mean is to look. And so to look at flowers and have a party and drink sake. But for the last few years, for obvious reasons, these have been banned. You know, the major uh, parks in Tokyo where they have uh, the sakura trees, the cherry blossom trees, have had those um, road cones and poles between them, blocking them off. The logic being that they wanted to prevent the spread of COVID by stopping people from getting together and, and groups in the park. Uh, what it actually ended up doing was concentrating people even closer together outside the restricted areas, <laughs> thus contributing to the spread of COVID. But now those have been lifted. People are free to go back and have their picnics under the cherry trees again. And what I'm most looking forward to 
is the junior staff members that officers send out to go at five in the morning to go and sit on their lonesome under the tree, saving the spot for everyone else to come and join them at 2 p.m. So if you go through uh, Ueno Park at like six in the morning, you'll see, you'll see these very lonely figures of people <laughs> just hunched over their anime on their phones and just like the, their glowing faces as they wait for their colleagues to come join them several hours later. So I'm looking for some one thing I've really missed. But the, the, there is there is an, an economic side to this, which is that things are opening up again. Life is coming back. It's been very muted and quiet uh, in Tokyo and in Japan for the last few years. Tourists from China here are only 4% of what they were before the pandemic in 2019. There's still 95, 96% still to come to make up the 38 million tourists that Japan had before the pandemic. Tourists from elsewhere in the world are 50% of what they were before the pandemic. And so uh, this event, events like these and the festivals coming up in summer, you know, the snowboarding and skiing we've just hit over the winter, these all play major parts, not just in uh, Japanese life and, and in the expression of life here, but also in the economy as well. So there are a lot of businesses jogging on the spot waiting for these uh, travelers to return. Chris Gilbert. Twenty past five. It's Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we're going to hear from flood victims who say that councils, not residents, should be responsible for keeping waterways clear. And we catch up with the breakers as they jet off to Sydney. Time to hear now from the local democracy reporting programme. Today it's Alicia Evans with us from Bay of Plenty. She started by telling me why dog owners in her patch are feeling very happy. Yes, we're looking at getting two new dog parks, one in Omokuroa and the other one in Katikati. So they're going to consult on those on the annual plan. They've got some funding for them. They've got an idea of where they might go. There's the Lynx View Drive Reserve in Omokuroa and Donegal Drive Reserve in Katikati. So people will get to have their say on if they want them for their dogs. Positive step, a fenced off place for us to all take our pets and have some good hangout times with them. Yes, and please please be kind to other people's dogs. Remember, small small dogs in the small dog bit, large dogs in the large dog bit. We can't can't have that one um, getting in and mucking stuff up. We spoke a little while ago about the Whareroa Marae in Mount Maunganui. Can you tell us there, I know that there was some heavy industry near to them that they were worried about with particulates coming out into the, into the air that they're breathing in. What's the latest on that? Yes, so they are still there, that is still happening, but the council got a study done and they've said that there's no feasible legal reason for them to remove that and relocate that heavy industry because they have existing rights under the Resource Management Act and they didn't think that was likely to change with the new Resource Management Act coming in and all the changes they're doing with that, those reforms. So the Marae, they're pretty disappointed. They've said, well, you know, our people are going to continue to be poisoned. We're going to push back on the council still and keep pushing on the government to try and get this industry relocated. There's got to be other feasible ways of doing it. You know, that Marae's been there since the 1800s and they're like, well, where are our existing user rights if these other big businesses that are polluting the air have existing user rights? Don't we have some too? Hmm. Well, apparently they don't at the moment, so let's uh, wonder if that one changes. Finally, something here, clubs are protesting a potential stadium in Tauranga. Why? Well, it's going to displace them. It's the, possibly going to be putting it on the Tauranga domain. There's a business case underway at the moment. It'll be a $170 million, eight to 10,000-seat stadium. And if it goes on the domain, there's already a tennis club 
croquet club, bowls club, and an all-weather athletics track. The tennis club would stay but have a little bit of alterations done to its courts and things. All the others would have to go to make way for the stadium, and these people, they don't want to go. There's about 400 people that turned up to this protest to show their support, and um, they've all invested you know, a lot of volunteer time in these clubs. They've got leases till 2029, so they're like, why do we have to go and why do you have to break our leases? Uh, what's the timeline for the stadium to be built? I think it would be sort of 2026, 27, something like that. So those clubs, you know, would be getting relocated earlier. They've said they'd relocate them, but at this stage, there's nowhere to relocate them to. They haven't offered them any other sites. So they're pretty worried that they'll just be relocated to nowhere or potentially amalgamated into other clubs around the area. Oh, yeah, and you've got rivalries. You don't want to amalgamate. It's the whole whole point. The whole point is competition against other people. Alicia, thank you very much for your time with all our reports from LDR and Bay of Plenty. That's Alicia Evans. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Yeah, 14th of March. Goodness me, we're here already, eh? Um, Albert Einstein was born on the day, actually, 1879, so that's that's pretty cool. And what about this day, 1980 in New Zealand musical history? This was their first number one New Zealand song. How about that? I album, of course, was uh, True Colours, topped the charts in Australia and Canada. They were quite big in Canada. Uh, reached number 12 in Britain, number 53 in the United States. So, yeah, their first number one. Absolute tune. Uh, celebrating birthdays today, sports people from the United States. Simone Biles is 26 years old today and probably doing tumbles as we speak right now. Steph Curry, probably the greatest shooter in NBA history. He is uh, 35 years old today. Okay, now a bit that made me go, what? Rick Dees. I loved Rick Dees, American Top 40, Weekly Top 40, I should say. He's 73 today. Billy Crystal is 75 years old today uh bob charles sir bob charles uh namesake of the bob charles action gusset of course is 87 years old today quincy jones is 90 and michael kane you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off is 90 years old today he's won two academy awards bafta three golden globes Screen Actors Guild Award there as well. This day in 1794, Eli Whitney received a patent for his cotton gin. And the gin was just short for engine. And that's the thing that removes the seeds out of the cotton. He said he got the idea from watching a cat trying to pull a chicken through a fence, but was only able to pull the feathers through. Anyway, so you keep your eyes up, everybody. There's millions just waiting for you. Speaking of millions, Sylvan Goldman patented the first shopping cart today. He was the owner of the Humpty Dumpty grocery store in Oklahoma City. Uh, Now, initially, the the carts were an absolute flop. Men said, I'm not using those. I don't need those there. Uh, They're effeminate. Women also thought, no, I'm not doing that. It looks like I've got a baby carriage out there. So they hired attractive people. They hired models to shop with them. And everyone went, I want to do that. I want to be one of those successful people too. So, um, yeah, they became very popular. Goldman became a multi-millionaire because he collected a royalty on every one. And then a couple of years later, he sat up in the middle of the night and went, I've got it! I've got it! What if we nested them? And then, you know, your trolley now, when you push them back, are they fold into each other? Yeah, nesting trolleys. Sylvan Goldman. The person to thank for that. And um, do you do what I do where you play that golf thing? If it looks like it's the parking lot's a bit empty and say from your car to the little you know, place where you put your trolleys back, if it's about 
10 metres. I'll do it. I'll try and do it as if I'm doing a long distance putt on the golf and I'll give it a push and hopefully it does a nice little bit of a curve and goes poof into the uh, back of one of the trolleys. But I always go and stick it in. There you go. That's uh, Shopping Cart Talk and it's uh, a big part of the show now here at First Up. Anantak is all about business and accountability and I'll bet you're one of those people I know like me who takes their shopping trolley back, doesn't just leave it in the car park. Oh, always. Yeah. Always. And yeah, Common yeah. courtesy, isn't it? Yep, you can count on us for that one. Tell me about this. Uh, the New Zealand tech companies, obviously this um, Silicon Valley bank looks like, oh no, everything computery has fallen over, but our tech companies might be okay here? Yeah, uh, some good news, uh, I suppose, on uh, on the New Zealand front. Uh, it's been an extraordinary few days, uh, hasn't it? Um, but the good news for us uh, came uh, yesterday uh, after regulators uh, told uh, everyone that uh, depositors for uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, um, that's a leader in the crypto industry, uh, Federal regulators said uh, people can access their deposits. So a bit of good news there. So look, the updates uh, yesterday mean that New Zealand companies will escape the worst of it, but no doubt uh, they will be spooked. Uh, among the New Zealand listed companies affected are Comvita and Ike GPS. Uh, Zero, the accounting software firm, although they're listed in Australia, they're also affected. Uh, they are a New Zealand company at the end of the day, uh, but it's not a huge amount of money. Uh, Rocket Lab, another New Zealand-founded uh, company, they're an, an American company now, but uh, they they have $38 million US dollars at SVB. Uh, but they're all going to get their money back, uh, which uh, I'm sure they will be happy about. Now, we spoke to the head of uh, New Zealand a Private Capital Association, Colin McKinnon, uh, who you'll hopefully hear in the business news later this morning. Uh, and he says uh, overseas investors could reassess their risk profiles uh, as a result of uh, SVB's collapse. But uh, New Zealand should be largely spared, uh, although early stage in the in uh, early stage companies in the U.S. might not be so lucky. They might struggle to raise capital as uh, funders pull back a little bit and just uh, take a bit of a breather and just assess uh, what's going on. Mm. Uh, bank profits, though, they've surged to a record high. So that's obviously not the Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, we'll after the news of uh, collapse, regional bank in the US, uh, banks in New Zealand are doing pretty well. Uh, their profits have hit a record high. Uh, collective profit for the sector for 2022 was 7.18 billion dollars. Uh, banks are benefiting from more lending. Bad debts were low, and uh, they also benefited from higher margins and. The industry profit was uh, 17% higher than a year ago, but uh, would you believe the growth was uh, smaller than the previous year when the housing market boomed and everyone seemed to be taking out a mortgage? Uh, We spoke to KPMG's head of banking, John Kensington, and uh, he told us that the slowing economy and possibly a recession and also people just tightening their budgets 
will actually dent uh, bank profits uh, this year. Uh, he's ex- he's expecting earnings to be flatter, mm. and of course, more bad debts as uh, people. Uh, start to feel the pain of the uh, higher cost of living. So the golden Mm. period might be coming to an end. No, just making mild billions from now on. Thank you very much, Anandzaki. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. If you're just out there shopping with $1, uh, here's what you'll get, 62.45 US cents, 93.31 Australian cents, 58.26 Euro cents, 51.37 British pence, 4.27 yuan, and 82.97 Japanese yen. It is 25 to 6 hundreds of West Auckland properties have been red or yellow stickered after being hammered by the anniversary floods in Cyclone Gabrielle. Several of, those, of these homes were inundated after local streams burst their banks. Now residents are asking if Auckland Council could have done a better job of maintaining the waterways, but the council says where a stream runs through private property, upkeep is the owner's responsibility. This comes as Auckland's water operator, Watercare, announced this morning that prices will increase by 9.5% from July. Our producer Marvash Ikram spoke to Phil Thomas, whose home has a stream running behind it and was yellow-stickered after the recent deluge. We have had three floods one waist deep in my garage, the latest one uh, anniversary weekend, which was 800 millimetres through the entire lower floor of our house, including two metres in my garage. And then the Friday, a couple of Fridays after that, another 100 millimetres through the garage, but no real damage with that because everything's stuffed anyway. Do you want to explain to me how much of that stream runs through your property and what sort of maintenance you're expected to do on it? We've got probably 80 metres of stream that runs through our property. It's uh, bush-lined. Half our property is cleared. The other half is in native bush. And each time we get an event, we have to go down there and pull all the sticks and the branches and so forth, which have washed down from other properties, remove that, remove all the, the washing baskets and the washing machines and the toddlers' pools and toddlers' toys and ride-on toys, etc., out of the creek so that they don't block it up and restrict that flow. It is a chore. I'm lucky in respects that I'm, I'm able to, to wrestle those things out of the creek myself. But there are people that can't do that, and that's where the council should be stepping up. When you bought the house, obviously you would have known that there's a stream there, etc. Was there anything on the limb report, anything that made you think hey, this is not a, a good place to move. On the limb reports, mentioned that there is a line defining the 100-year flood zone or the 1 in 100 flood zone, which is basically the edge of our driveway by the house, um, and the house and garage are above that. Um, the previous owners had mentioned that it floods on the lower grass, so don't leave anything down there, and that was it. And they, they said the 13-odd years they've been here, they had never had anything yet above the driveway. So, yeah. It is a public asset that happens to run through your property. Do you think uh, it's a wise thing to ask property owners to maintain it? We're diligent with looking after it. However, other people don't care. You know, it's just there. And we, as business owners further downstream, we have that same attitude. It's still a creek. It's, no, I don't have to look after that. And then things block up and the consequences are houses upstream get flooded. When they've added subdivisions up the road 
there's been at least three or four that feed into our little stream. And now there's another uh, two major subdivisions going in, and they haven't even started to discharge their water into the waterway. What's the effect going to be on that? Are we going to be having these floods every time it rains? That's our concern. My family gets nervous now when it rains, like in the back of your mind, what's going to be like this time? Moving forward, I mean, you've got a home, it's yellow sticker. Would you want to move from there? And what about that stream? What do you want? I want to know that the stream is clear downstream from us. I want to know who in the council is making these decisions to add these subdivisions, which are massive areas, which are then discharging into these waterways, which are already can't cope with these large rain events. So the council needs to really look at how they're managing all this. This, this is a much bigger problem just than just our little lonesome brook um, stream flooding two or three times. This is having a serious impact on all the lives in this area. It's happening too often now to just ignore. It's devastating. You try and smile and keep going, but it's, it eats away at you. For us to move, I guess that's the, the ultimate answer, isn't it? You, know, you leave it, you walk away from it. We're like, pass that on to somebody else? No. Not not morally. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night knowing that whoever goes into this property is going to end up in the same situation we are. We've been well looked after by our insurance company, but when are they going to draw the line? You know, how many times will they rebuild us before they say, no, we're not going to cover you anymore? That's Phil Thomas. It is 20 to 6. Uh, the Breakers live to fight another day and to catch yet another plane uh, across the ditch to Australia. Well, they flew it yesterday, actually. The sole New Zealand team in the Australian National Basketball League took the final series to a deciding fifth game by defeating the Sydney Kings 80-70 to 70 at Spark Arena on Sunday night. The team flew out yesterday afternoon, but we sent Leonard Powell along to intercept them just before they left. The Breakers are no strangers to airports. With five trans-Tasman flights in the past two weeks alone, the team filed through the business class check-in on Monday afternoon, less than 24 hours after defeating the Sydney Kings. Breakers captain Tom Abercrombie had his game face on and, unlike some ANBL coaches of late, refused to get sucked into any mind games. All that talk's just a bit of a chess match really between coaches and whatever. Um, as a player we're just focused on going out there and as I said trying to play the way, the way that we want to play and you know I think we did that last night we're going to go out and try and do the same thing. But the veteran Abercrombie acknowledged the intensity that's been displayed by both teams during these finals. Of course there is, you know, there's a lot on the line, both teams want it very badly, you know it brings out all sorts of emotions and as I said, whenever there's, there's talk and discussion and storylines around a five-game series, um, you know, things are going to bubble to the surface. But we're completely focused on what we're doing and, as I said, just embracing who we are and, and continuing to do that for one more game. Breakers coach Modi Moore wasn't prepared to give much away to the press pack. When asked by one journo what he made of some of the more contentious refereeing decisions during the series, Moore didn't mince his words. I don't care. I don't care. Star guard Barry Brown Jr.'s game face was helped by the huge reflective sunglasses that the American import was wearing. How long does it take you to get to sleep after a game like last night? Uh, I mean, it took a while, you know what I'm saying? You just had to still have those uh, feelings and that adrenaline, I guess, still going. But uh, 
maybe I would say maybe two o'clock in the morning. The Breakers are making their 13th trip across the Tasman since the season started in October, but it's business as usual for Brown. I mean, we've been doing it all year, so it's just something that's kind of normal now. Usually we do game, travel, game, and so now it's two days in between. It's kind of better than what we used to. The man who may have had the latest night was Breakers general manager Simon Edwards, who says he got to sleep sometime after 4am. He told me the logistics that go into organising a do-or-die finals match. In my line of work, planning is key. So um, you have to plan for the win and going to Game 5, but you also have to um, plan for the, the loss as well. So uh, there, there were a lot of wheels in motion um, that thankfully uh, don't have to do in terms of um, each of interviews with the players and, and uh, sending the players home and uh, ending leases and uh, for both cars and uh and so it was just basically pushing go on everything that we had planned. With coach Modi Moore remaining tight-lipped about game plans ahead of the final, it was one last travel-related question for Barry Brown Jr. If there's one player in the team who's most likely to leave their passport behind, who would it be? Probably me. Probably me, for sure. Luckily, that was Barry, Barry Brown Jr., he remembered his passport, so he's all set to go. He's ready to help bring the club's fifth championship. That's on Wednesday night. Tip-off will be at 9.30pm New Zealand time. It's a quarter to six. Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come, we have a look at uh, last night's bad news for National in the latest political poll. You'll hear from Nicola Willis. And uh, we'll just discuss lots of things there around the government's uh, policy dumps and all that as well. The professionals of the RNZ ship are the Morning Report crew. It's political editor Jane Patterson. I get to say kia ora to you this morning. How are you? Kia ora. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very good. I'm just wondering who changed Peter's weather report because it had Wellington usually fine. And we thought, oh, that sounds like a bit of marketing, doesn't it? Oh, no. It's been pretty good down here. Nice, clear morning this morning. Nice and crisp. It's like when I go home to Hawke's Bay and everyone's always like, oh, I should have been here two days ago. (laughs) Oh, it's too hot. Too hot then. God, it's better now. Hey, so um, last night was very interesting. Uh, Big news with the TVNZ poll. Probably not so much in isolation. But this is two polls in a row now where it, it appears that National's slipping a little bit there. What do you see when you see these figures and I guess zoom out on the trends? That's right. Uh, Labour and Christopher Hipkins are making good inroads into their vote there, stabilising their support that had started to plateau away at the end of last year. Obviously a big change with Jacinda Ardern resigning and then Hipkins taking over, but he's managed to stabilise and pull up that vote and he's also managed to um, work on his Prime Minister, preferred Prime Minister stakes to improving that um, up 4% and in comparison Nationals Christopher Luxon down 5 points to 17% so that will be a particular area of concern for National um, with their party vote down a little bit as was Labour's so the interesting thing in this poll is um, the likes of the Green Party and Party Māori um, coming up, all of the smaller parties are the ones that are sort of getting a bit of a bump in support in this one so if you zoom out a little bit and you have a look at climate um, uh, voters start 
starting to question Labour's climate credentials? Are they starting to go back to the Greens, have a look at them? The other thing issue I think is going to be very interesting is uh, Three Waters. That is still a policy in front of the government that they have to look at and um, indications are that they could look to water down the co-governance elements of that. So um, are Māori voters or people who support the Māori Party starting to look around? Could Labour mm. start to compromise that vote? And then Chris Hipkins and uh, Christopher Luxon scrapping it out in the middle over that cost of living. I'm just wondering there, Jane, a couple of things I want to ask you about. Uh, but really I want to know, looking now that it swings towards Te Pāti Māori being the, the kingmaker when you have a look at this, when you have a look at not attending Waitangi on the day, when you have a look at going to Ratana and making a very unusual speech there, was that actually, can you look back at that and go, that's a political bumble there by National doing what they did there? There's not a particularly close relationship um, in terms of between the Māori Party and um, and National, and that would certainly take a lot of work. But Christopher Luxon turned up at Waitangi. He would argue that he turned up to answer the questions, and that um, he wouldn't have seen anything that he, you know, does or did up there as a snub to Māori. It's obviously a very important um, kickoff to the start of the year. A lot of people might have very different views, but I think politically he would say, hey, I was there, unlike um, other former National Party leaders in the past. We would note too on this poll, um, Labour and the Greens starting to come back as the parties, along with the Māori Party that could form a government that Mm. hasn't been within their reach. Um, Obviously a huge amount of work to do if Christopher Luxon and National are eyeing that Māori vote. Um, And actually, as I said, Labour's going to have to um, step carefully too if they want to keep that support as well. Um, the Māori Party, interestingly, are uh, having that very influential role. So Māori politics, as every election, is going to be very, very important and interesting this election. Yeah, Jane, thank you very much for your time. Jane and Corin have a morning report for you up after six. Yeah, last night's poll uh, that you just heard about there. So uh, bad news for National Party, particularly uh, for Christopher Luxon too. Just 17% of people now say he's their preferred Prime Minister. That's down a massive five percentage points. Support for National down three to 34. Labour down two to 36%. Uh, on those numbers, National and Act could not form uh, the next government, which was quite different from the polls a couple of polls ago. So on the preferred Prime Minister's stakes, as you heard, Chris Hipkins is up four points to 27%. So I asked National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis, is, the, is, what, is this crisis point for her party? No, not at all. Look, we expect the polls will move up and down between now and the election. We never read too much into one poll. We certainly want the polls to be higher. We'll be working to earn much more support from New Zealanders. But when we look back over the past couple of months in New Zealand, rightly, voters have been focused on the terrible weather events in Auckland, Cyclone Gabriel, the clean-up from those. And so politics, as usual, hasn't had as much airtime as it sometimes does, and I think the focus has been there. But as we look to the future, National will be working hard to bring the focus back to how we strengthen the economy, how we reduce the cost of living, how we lift incomes, how we restore law and order, deliver better education services, better health services. Uh, And you'll hear us putting forward our ideas, and we're confident that will help us earn more support. You know, you mentioned the other weather, and that has been dominant uh, for all of New Zealand. Many of New Zealand's, I mean, Karikari is still cut off. I think they've got a single single lane coming out to them soon. But big bump up for the Greens, up 4% there, up to 11. So a clear indication that climate change 
is really big in people's minds after Cyclone Gabrielle. Why do you think that voters see climate change? They must look at it and see it as not a priority for National with your numbers going down? Oh, I don't think that's right. I think that climate change is an issue that voters across the political spectrum are concerned about. And National's position has always been we need to think practically about climate change, both how we reduce emissions in a low-cost way, how we get regulatory constraints and red tape out of the way of new wind farms, for example, and also how we invest in the infrastructure that's going to make New Zealand more resilient. Mm. And that's, of course, about delivery. It's about working with the private sector, about prioritising the right projects and getting them built. And National's got a great track record when it comes to infrastructure. Uh, and so we're confident that we can put forward good climate resilience plans for the future. Right. I'll, I'll talk to you about where you might put the money soon. Just very quickly, there with Labour, it looks like it's they might be becoming more aligned with National on the policy front with things that they have and things they don't have anymore. Do you think that makes them more attractive to people who might otherwise have voted National? Look, I think that Labor's challenge is that they have, over the past uh, five years, almost six years now, uh, struggled to actually strengthen the economy. And New Zealand is really feeling the effects of that right now. You know, inflation going up is hurting people across the board. And you saw today, yes, there were some adjustments, adjustments to superannuation payments and benefits. Mm. National accepts that that is necessary. We don't want superannuitants going backwards as the cost of inflation. But at the same time, there's been no adjustment to the tax thresholds for working New Zealanders. And, and our view is that actually Labor's been spending so much with so little impact that it should instead be letting people hold on to more of their own money. And the more I see the government dumping policies left, right and centre, whether it's the TVNZ, RNZ merger or the cash for clunkers scheme, the more I think that's a tacit admission that they haven't had their eye on the ball, that they have been wasting money. And it's a little bit too late and it's a little bit too little. Isn't it better that they've dumped them, though, if you thought they were wasteful? Is, is that not a good thing? Yes, it is better that they'd dumped them, but I'd prefer they hadn't started them in the first place, and I'd prefer they hadn't wasted a lot of money on them in the meantime. We've had huge amounts of policy work going into these policies, people working away, consultants working away, money being poured at them. And it just confirms my view that across government, there's a lot of slack in the system, a lack of focus, a lot of money being spent on things that aren't as important as helping New Zealanders meet their household bills. OK, so that, that big dump of government policies that was announced, quite a few there gone. The government reckons it's going to save more than a billion dollars. Have you had a chance to dive into the maths to see if those numbers add up? Uh, look, I've only had a first look, Nathan, but we will be analysing those numbers more carefully to see whether that's over one year or over four years. What is clear is that the adjustments to superannuation and benefits only account for 300 million of that, so there's still 700 million spare. And I just want to say again, the case for tax reduction for working New Zealanders has never been stronger. Everyone else in the economy has had an inflation adjustment, but not hardworking Kiwis who are paying more tax as a proportion of their income 
than ever and who are also facing the highest inflation in 32 years and food prices today. Uh, we learn uh, uh, risen faster in the past year than they have at any time since 1989. It is tough for workers right now. The government should be prioritising tax relief. Mm. And it, it is, it's going to do away with, I'll read some out to you and you just tell me if any of these policies are ones which National would have kept. So I'll just run through them there. So the speed uh, limit reductions, clean car upgrade, social leasing car scheme, and it's also delayed uh, work on reducing the voting age to 16, and alcohol law reforms. Are any of those policies ones which National would have kept? No, none of those are our priorities, and we've said that about each of those policies. You know, we said at the time the last thing New Zealanders in a cost of living crisis need is the distraction. Uh, of a of legislation to lower the voting age. We've been consistent in our view that the universal speed limit reductions are not the right way to make our roads safer. Uh, and we've been concerned with many elements of the government's emissions reduction plan because they seem to have picked extremely bureaucratic, expensive ways of reducing emissions. And the reality is New Zealanders are paying for those plans, such as the, the ones that were dumped today. Uh, and we think there should be a much higher level of scrutiny of those policies before they go ahead. Do you think the government was taking advantage of Cyclone Gabrielle to ditch those, those unpopular policies? My only lament, Nathan, is that they didn't embark on these in the first place. You know, it's just the wasted effort, time, resources that have gone into these policies. And it makes me think, what else has the government been wasting New Zealanders' money on over these past six years? And, you know, the list is really long and it's a little bit too little and a little bit too late because we've now had inflation embedded in our economy over the target for 21 months. Economists are saying, look, it's going to stick around for another year. There are people all over the country doing it really tough as a result. The government seems to only just be waking up to that fact. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis there. A lot of feedback in. Uh, Mike and Nahadiri said, hey, water should be charged for always. Um, currently there's no charges in Napier as well, says Mike, but... Uh I'd do that. Uh, A. Johnson of Waikino says increasing increasing food prices. Why? Supermarkets have record profits again. And Anon is hugely disappointed in Chris Hipkins. Thank you, Anon. Uh, Morning Report is next with Jane and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Uh, Paul, Paul.